Welcome to the Matthew Moran Podcast. Here you will find a series of in-depth conversations with the world's best nature photographers, filmmakers, conservationists, editors, writers, and publishers. You will get an insight into the lives of creative professionals and industry experts. It is a chance to hear their stories, personal journeys, and how they carve a niche to make a living. The podcast focuses on the role that photography and filmmaking plays in helping to raise awareness about the global plight of species. And despite the depressing statistics, we look for solutions of what we can all do to contribute to conservation. All my guests give up their precious time and are incredibly generous in spirit. So this is my chance to share these conversations with you. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. This week, my guest is Megan McCubbin. Megan is a zoologist, presenter, campaigner, and photographer. From a young age, Megan traveled the world searching for and photographing wildlife in remote locations. And she was rewarded early on for her efforts and was the recipient of the Under-12s RSPCA Wildlife Photographer of the Year. Now, photography is just one of Megan's many communication tools. She is a passionate wildlife campaigner and activist. She is also a presenter and has made films tackling issues such as the bear bar farming industry in Vietnam for the BBC. She's reported on plastic pollution and the rise of Extinction Rebellion for Al Jazeera. And this year she made her debut presenting BBC's flagship nature series, Springwatch. In this episode, Megan and I talk about all aspects of her work, from photographing and presenting, to educating and inspiring people to engage with nature, and how she turns negative energy into a force for good. Please share this episode with your friends, loved ones, people on the fence, anyone with the slightest interest in nature needs to hear these stories to get them out there to inform and inspire others to help protect the natural world enjoy the show megan thank you so much for coming along and taking part in the podcast it's funny actually i was thinking we had some contact earlier in the year about you coming on and then there was a bit of a gap and then I saw you on the front cover of Hello magazine and I was like, oh no, <laughs> I've lost my opportunity now. She's too big. <laughs> She'll never come back. <laughs> well, no, thank you very much for having me on. I know we've been talking about it for a while, so it's, uh, it's good that we can actually make it happen. Yeah, it's great. And you just got back from a trip to Scotland, right? I have. What were you doing? Yeah, well, I took a couple um about, about 10 days out and just kind of went off grid. And um, myself and my partner went around in a, a van, obviously being the, the regulations, COVID regulations were put in place whilst we were out there, the stricter um, guidelines from the government. So we were incredibly careful. And um, but, you know, we were in the van going around the coast and just kind of looking for wildlife. So we saw some cool eagles, golden eagles. Um, we went out looking for basking sharks one day, but it was I, I've got a curse of the basking shark because they're top of my list. But um, I'm never able to see them whenever I go looking for them. They're never there. And um, yeah, and the curse was true that day, too. So, <laughs> But we did see some great stuff. It was lovely. That's great. You, I, I kind of like to hear those stories because it means, you know, you have have to work and you have to graft for those wildlife sightings and it's not just roll up and there it is right in front of you you've got to make an effort and it keeps you hungry right for going back yeah it makes it even better when you do get that encounter it makes all the work worthwhile and um 
yeah, I think if you don't put in the work, then it's not as enjoyable, is it? You've got to really go for it. And it's be amazing to turn up everywhere and have, you know, the most amazing animals just walk right past you or swim right past you, whatever their form of locomotion might be. But um, it doesn't work like that. Not at all. You've got to really put in the effort and do the research and figure out where they are in the best times and the weather, you know, so weather dependent. But um, yeah, basking charts, elusive very elusive (laughs) and it's true because i think you know when you talk to you know friends or you know family that don't quite know what what goes into or people that just watch you you know online or on tv they they just see of course the edited version and and actually a lot of it can be really boring a lot of it is just about being really persistent to try and see all the great stuff that you want to see to try and capture it on camera. There's a, a whole journey of frustration, and sometimes it can be really agonising. And and then people see, you know, a great short clip or a video or something online, and they're like, oh wow, you know, she's got the most amazing lifestyle. He's got the most amazing, most amazing lifestyle. But um, it's not always so glamorous, is it? No, I think what people don't realise is that you've probably spent the best part of 10 hours lying in a rainy ditch on some really uncomfortable jagged stones or kind of covered in some kind of animal excrement or <laughs> something. Um, no, it's not easy. And it's like, a lot of it is, as I say, agonising because you're waiting for so long. You're waiting for that moment. You know, you, if you're filming or taking photos and you want the perfect lighting, sometimes they don't match up. And, you know, occasionally they do and it's magical. Um, but yeah, all the work that goes into kind of getting the shot or just seeing the animal behaving naturally in its environment is... um. Yeah, you get to see the highlights in the in the films and the clips, which is great. But it's um, it is a lot of work sometimes, depending on the species, of course. But it can be tricky. Yeah, and you've been so busy recently, and I would definitely want to come on to talk about you know a lot of the stuff that you've been up to this year. But for the listeners who you know don't really know about you and you know what your your work on, I know you work on many different fronts, but it would be good to go back and 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 find out how you got interested in the natural world and what uh your were your motivations and and you know your journey to 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 where you are now yeah I think um so I grew up with Chris Packham he's my well if we say stepdad it's easier you kind of need a mind map to work out my family but um yeah so I met Chris when I was two and he very much took me in straight away and showed me the natural world showed me his passion and I was exposed to wildlife that I would never in a million years ever get the chance to see if I hadn't met him um at a really close in a really close proximity so I remember being in a ball pit in a tv studio I mean this is in the 90s when this kind of thing was okay um or you know deemed to be okay um I was sat in a ball pit with a load of meerkats or there were lion cubs running around and there were owls, eagle owls sat on the toilet. We had a downstairs bathroom, which was kind of like our little rehabilitation centre. And every time I'd come in from school, I'd run downstairs to see what animal we were rehabilitating the day that day. So it was a fox or it was an owl or anything. So I, you know, had quite a lot of um, wildlife coming in and out of my life. You know, I had porcupine obsession because I Chris used to take me to our local zoo in Marwell in Southampton and we'd go and see the porcupines there was a male called Vicar that I was absolutely obsessed with so I kind of had a um a really early introduction to wildlife and I would you know get wasps to land on my nose by putting jam on it I would put at my birthday parties were all wildlife themed I'd have moth trap parties and so for me growing up around in and around animals was just part of it and I loved every second of it my bedroom was some kind of um weird zoological 
I don't know, time warp, I suppose, because it had skulls and I had praying mantises and cockroaches and I had uh, tortoises. I had the fluffy, cutesy stuff too. I had the hamsters and the poodles and the rabbits, but I also had the tarantulas and um, <laughs> the, the kind of the I'm picturing that scene in Ace Ventura in the early in in when in the early scene when he when he goes into his flat and he whistles and all these animals come out, raccoons, <laughs> deers, everything. That was your bedroom. And it's so funny because, you know, I have a two and a half year old daughter and there's no book that isn't animal themed. It's such an important part of of growing up and kids are engaging with animals through through books, through the fluffy toys from such a young age. So it sounded like it was such a dream for you to have that and and also be living with the live ones as well in your bedroom. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I think at the time it was quite normal. But looking back on it, it was incredibly lucky that Chris was able to kind of show me and teach me in that way. Um, and yeah, I think like every, every child has this innate curiosity about the natural world around them. We're always wondering about how that works, why that animal does that. And, you know, we watch the TV shows. I remember one show that stands out particularly for me as a kid. I don't know if you remember. It, it's called Amazing Animals. And it had Henry the gecko and it had the most amazing theme tune. It was like this kind of box and all these animals would like light up and this green gecko with purple spots would crawl out and he'd be going on these adventures and meeting all these animals. And I remember just watching that over and over and over when I was about four or five years old. So we all have these kind of media um, influences, I suppose, you know, these shows and I think today's generation is all deadly 60 um, and that kind of thing, wonderful Steve Bankshaw. And, um, and yeah, I think it kind of really helps in, in, to to watch those kind of programs. And for me, you know, being able to watch those programs and then go and meet some of those animals, I think that just sparked off a lifelong passion and a, a drive to help protect the natural world. That's great. And you didn't have kind of any lulls as you grew older. It just really, it kind of gripped you and stayed with you, right, throughout your teenage years. And and then ultimately you ended up studying zoology. And, and as that was that how it was through your younger life? It just continued? Yeah, I think so. I think I had my wobbles, as every teenager does. You know, you're the rebelling stage. I'm not going to do what you expect me to do. I'm going to do something different because why not? I think I, I, you know, I went in and did a bit of drama for a bit. But I'm also, um, I'm dyslexic. So I really struggled with science at school. I found it really, really tough. My maths is absolutely horrendous. Even today, <laughs> my times tables, I really struggle. Um, I can't, I'm, you know, numbers just don't agree with me. Um, so, uh, you know, science was something that I, I couldn't, grasp very well so I think there was a period of time where I kind of wanted to learn more about the natural world I wanted to get involved with it more but I wasn't sure if I could I wasn't sure if I was capable of going and doing you know zoology a science degree or studying or doing that kind of thing so I had to kind of work out what I really wanted um, and of course it was always going to be wildlife there was you know nothing that would come close to it and I just had to work at it so how, yeah, how, how did you get around that? I mean, that's quite a thing, you know, being dyslexic and not, you know, fitting into the system. How did you work work it out that you ended up with a zoology degree? Yeah, I mean, I did a, I ended up doing a foundation year, which was really helpful. So I studied at the University of Liverpool um, and they did a great biological science foundation year. And there was a lot, you know, a lot of support there um, for, you know, I grew up in a period of time when there was, there's a lot of support available. Yeah. If, if it was needed. Um uh, and, and early on I did need quite a lot of support I'd have lessons specific lessons I think three or four times a week to help manage to help with reading and writing because I was really behind and all that kind of stuff but I think it's just a process you have to learn how you learn 
and you work in the way that's best for you if it takes a bit longer that's okay I'm you know I've just written a book and it takes me longer to write than it does other people but that's okay because I agonize over every sentence (laughs) over and over and over again to make sure I've got all the words that I want and to make sure that it's structurally and um structurally sound and the punctuation is correct I'll agonize over a sentence for about 15 minutes before I move on which is a real pain to be honest um but it's just learning how how your brain works and you know everyone's brain is different we all cope with different things it's just you have to kind of understand that and I think you have to go through different trials if you're dyslexic to figure out what works for you yeah and, um, and then you can kind of build on it from there that sounds re- really interesting and I understand that writing issue is something that I struggle with but also have to do you know whether it's articles or writing proposals or whatever and and you um or or even books you know and as particularly books of course you have to write lots and I so because I struggle with it my partner a couple of years ago put me on a writing course and it was one of the best things I did it was just a day but it really did open things up for me because the guy who ran this course um you know who was a, a well-published author he said this great thing about writing and he said if you're struggling with it which so many people do even professional writers you know suffering from writer's block the thing to do and it seems counterintuitive is just to write and just keep going forwards and don't do what you do which is like you know agonize over every sentence you know every like you say everybody has their own way but he said don't write you know two paragraphs and go back and try and edit because because you'll never go forwards even if you think what you're writing isn't very good just keep going forwards because then you go on a journey that takes you places that you might never have gone if you just keep going back and it oh that sounds rubbish I'll change this no just keep going forwards and in many ways I actually stole this for my so I run photography workshops on Hampstead Heath and I thought this is a really good problem solver because many people also who come on my workshops you know you take them to a beautiful forest and they're actually a little bit stuck they don't know what to photograph so the thing to do is just start taking pictures and if you take you know 10 20 30 pictures don't take one and two and then go back and look and go on a journey take 10 20 30 pictures and then you'll have a body of work that you then can start to go back and i think it's the same with writing that you if if you can keep momentum if you can keep going forwards then you will improve and just go through that experience of having that almost brain dump you know um right on the paper and and get things going and then you know you'll be surprised sometimes at stuff that you come out with so um yeah well I'm we're going to talk about your book in a bit I'm really excited to to get a copy um particularly at the moment um because I've just acquired a small piece of of land who 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 does that right in uh, in in London I mean when I say small it's tiny it's it's on the allotment where I photograph my foxes um and uh it's it's a it's a it's a bit of derelict land at the edge of the allotment that you can't grow anything on and they just said does anybody want to take charge to have a wildlife garden or do something and i just put my hand up straight away so i'm going to start this in a couple of weeks so your book's going to be very handy opportunity next to allotments which are really great for wildlife so that's that'd be a fantastic project it's going to be really really good yeah so i've got these ideas of doing you know planting native hedges and of course lots of wildflower seeds it's south facing which is really great it'll get a lot of sun um and uh yeah there's some people that want to plant fruit trees in there so it should be a really a really good fun fun project great you have to do some filming of it absolutely yeah i'm definitely gonna i'm definitely gonna document it for sure um yeah so speaking of filming well photography 
from quite a young age. You know, this is a photography podcast. We kind of actually, I was thinking you're also kind of like my ideal guest now. The way this podcast has evolved into conversations about conservation as as well as photography. Um, but you also, and of course, I'm sure under Chris's influence, started taking pictures from a young age, and you won an award at quite a young age. Yeah, I well, I got, I think I got given a disposable camera around age ten. <laughs> you know, see what you can do with that. So, you know, have like he, Chris had his big fancy camera, and I was just, you know, wanted to try it out. So I got given one of these, you know, really old rubbish ones. Um, that you know you inevitably chuck away and I think he kind of got them developed and I think I had to nag him a lot to get them developed <laughs> but he did it in the end and um yeah he thought you know okay I can compose relatively well so um ended up kind of getting a, a small digital camera and it kind of built up from there really so you did um, start on film no didn't start on film never oh, okay. never gone on film um no I've always always been a digital camera user <laughs> um so yeah, it kind of just started because I I've travelled a lot with Chris. Every time that he went and led a tour, or every time he went out filming, um, if he could, he would always take me with him. He used to run a production company, so it used to be um, quite good, and that I could just join on these amazing trips and we travel around the world together for a really long time. So because of that exposure to those amazing environments and those incredible animals, it was a great opportunity to photograph them. So I started taking photos of everything um, when, yeah, from, from the age of 10 onwards. And I think I came, uh, I won the under 12s RSPCA Young Photographer of the War, uh, uh, Young Photographer of the Year category. Um, that was in 2007, I believe. Wow, that's a lot. I, I was actually I was hunting around for that photo on the internet. I couldn't find it. What what what's the picture of? Oh, I can send it to you. It's good. It's two gannets. It was um they're diving from uh, diving into the water from Bass Rock. Oh, brilliant! Uh, and we went out on a boat and photographing on a boat is never easy because it's um really tricky because it's all wobbly all the time. So it's hard to get a, a sharp image. But um, I managed to get one of two kind of coming out of the water exactly at the same time, opposite sides with fish in their mouth. Both nice well look so, if we we get we can get it we can put it up in in the links on your page and yeah. so people can have a look sure yeah that's yeah. superb and then I mean the two kind of go hand in hand I think don't know if you love animals wildlife and having wildlife experiences documenting it is kind of the next best thing I always find experiencing it is the best thing always you know sometimes cameras can just get in the way of the real enjoyment and the experience of it but um when you're out there in it trying to capture photos of it obviously is a really really hard thing but it's such a rewarding thing to do you know when you get it right and that takes a lot of time and yeah. perseverance I take thousands absolutely thousands every time I go out I don't come back with any space on any of my cards because I'll take thousands and thousands of images in the space of a few hours and I'll come home and there might might be one if I'm lucky and that's the way it goes that's a good yeah. day that's a really good day and um, I'm you know so self-critical um of my images that it's it's really tricky to find one that I like <laughs> I think that's the same with every photographer you know you can take so many images but it's just the tiny little angles and, and lighting that make the world a difference so it's um yeah it's a labor of love and it's a, a love-hate relationship but it's um yeah it's one that I could never give up because I think it's such an important tool um, for conservation and you know to showcase what that snapshot of time what the world is like in that period of time what that species is doing um and and just to kind of share stories 
it's such a intimate snapshot of that area that you know it's it's a great way of communicating with people because with photographs you don't you're not conflicted to the boundaries of language you know a photograph can mean many different things to many different people but you know wherever you're from in the world if you show a photograph and you can elicit an emotion or a thought or a concern in some cases then you can ignite this spark and hopefully get people to engage in conversation um, and most importantly in action um, so for me photography is a really important tool and it's something I love doing creatively um, but it's also something that I think is one of the most important things in terms of contemporary conservation mm, yeah I completely agree with that and do you did you have any formal training in it did you study at all or did, did you literally just pick up a camera and, and 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 well I know you did that when you were very young but you just learned by doing yeah yeah just learned by picking up and giving a go obviously I had Chris there to teach me um, I remember we were this is we went on a trip to Antarctica when I was 11 I believe and I've got a this is when I was really learning to how to work one of these kind of bigger DSLR cameras um, and I remember we were lying just kind of down the slope looking up at a skewer on her nest and I remember he was to the left of me and we were both lying still for what you know for an 11 year old felt like an eternity but he was just like you know keep your eye there keep your eye there finger on the shutter you know if you if you lie here and she's not doing anything now she's gonna do something in a minute so you have to lie still and just wait so we were waiting and waiting all of a sudden another skewer flew past and she got up and stretched her wings out so for um you know hours of lying there waiting we'd both done this together and both got similar shots obviously next to one another but it was was still one of my favorite photos because it was one of the earliest better photos that I took and it has you know it kind of um reminds me of you know how he taught me to photograph and one of the most amazing life-changing trips um so yeah and I was just lucky that I got it sharp so <laughs> <laughs> it's always the way yeah the panic is it sharp is it yeah. sharp yeah. what a lovely story and like what a brilliant scene and and well, what a great mentor as well I mean I know you know Chris is highly highly critical um of his own work as well and I think it is it really is the best way to be you know the more ruthless you are editing your own work the better your portfolio is going to be yeah we're quite bad so how does it we're, very, we're, we're highly competitive highly highly competitive recently we've been out photographing the badgers um kind of just a few miles down the road from the house over lockdown and um yeah we kind of took turns going out because obviously we don't want too many people they're incredibly sensitive to smell but they were um they're incredibly willing to come up quite close probably too close actually because they would come up and they, their noses would be literally in your lens um and uh, it was amazing. It was incredible. And it was a really special group of badgers because they had different um, genetic colorations. So they were altruistic and um, leucistic and white and pink badgers, which were incredible. Um, and yeah, Chris had gone to try and take some photos and we you know, swept up all the leaves and cut down the branches to make sure there's minimal disturbance. And uh, he came back and, you know, he got some good ones. I went out and got a really good one and he was really up for quite some time so that that spurred him on then because then he spent the next week pretty much living there and then he came back with um yeah some of the best badger photos I've seen and I'm still quite upset by it brilliant a good bit of healthy competition yeah. I think yeah, yeah. we're critical of one another but also you know very supportive which is great 
that's brilliant. And how now with with all of the projects that you're working on and you know many different fronts, you know, doing your own films and presenting, um, you know, how do you find time for photography and how do you work as a photographer? You know, I know you say you go out and take thousands of pictures, but do you think about projects or are you just going out and practicing? Um, you know, what are, what are your what are your methods when you're photographing? I always like to think about it before I go. I like to have um, an image in mind if I can, so something to kind of aspire to. Um, it really it really does depend. It's quite tricky in terms of timing. That kind of in the last few years, I have had less time than I wanted to to go out and spend taking photos because I, it's something I really do enjoy, and I go and do it to wind down and relax. Um, so I haven't, you know, been able to do too many big photography projects recently, which is a shame. But when I do have a project in mind, I kind of think about how does anything need setting up? Um, and the thing is, I think when you're setting up a scene or there is something that you're putting in place, it's always really important to be honest that you're doing that. Um, so whether you're putting a branch, which is going to be, you know, a, a good place for a bird to come and sit, or whether you're um, going to, I don't know, an, an organisation and it might be a captive animal or um, if you're, we've got these amazing kind of boards which we create and we stick beads on them and put them in the background to create bokeh, essentially. So all, all these kind of tricks and things is really great and I, you know, I like being creative and seeing how far I can push things but you've also got to be honest about if it's, you know, a bit slightly artificially set up. Um, Definitely, because you're going to really piss off the purist wild, you know, the wildlife photography community is, well, you know, you better do it right. Yeah, exactly. And I, I've got this kind of mindset on it is that for me, photography is like an art form. Um, and, you know, there's one thing you can do kind of um, this pre and post production changes, obviously. And I think as long as you're open about what you've done to manipulate that image or manipulate that situation, it's fine. And I think actually pushing those boundaries isn't a bad thing so much I think it's actually can be really incredible and it's amazing what you can do you know in your camera and it's amazing what you can do in um you know post-production um programs you know to kind of manipulate things like change the lighting or remove a, a, a naughty twig there are so many naughty twigs um or to you know there's a bit of a or something to remove a black dust spot or something I don't mind that, but it's um I like to go in with a clear idea of what I'm after and then try and work towards it. I think you spend less time then. You kind of got a narrow objective and it's just easier to get what you like. Otherwise if I went out kind of aimlessly wandering around, I'd spend ages getting, you know, fifty photographs of a nice leaf and some light and then I'd get distracted by another subject and then and then I'd be all over the place. But if I go out with a singular focus then I, I know what I'm after and I'll stick on it for a few hours and then I might, I'll get a better shot in the end rather than kind of just wandering around. Yeah, I think that's great. I think also what you were saying about, you know, pushing the boundaries, it, it's important. I mean, if you look at, you know, what's um, being awarded in the major competitions currently, you know, compared to 10 years ago, is a huge change in in the creativity the, the creative side of photography which i think is amazing you know 10 years ago it was mostly long lens you know beautiful portraits of animals and now you're having all sorts of camera trap photography and of course the message is changing as well it's becoming a lot more conservation focused um what's being um, exhibited and, and shown in these competitions and then i think on top of that with Using the word manipulation, you know, that, or that that question that you get asked all the time: Do you Photoshop your pictures? And well, the you know the answer is that you have to, 
um, to, if you're going to do any kind of changes to them, whether it's just you know make a small JPEG to email out or a, a larger image to to do produce a print or a book, it has to go through some form of processing. And my approach to it is that you know Photoshop can't make a bad picture look good. You have to take a really really well exposed pin sharp picture showing great behavior or whatever it is before you even you know enter into making any changes or adjustments you know if you get good source material then you know my i like to use the word optimize you know okay. rather than manipulate i think that sort of sounds yeah, a bit I more positive i entirely agree with that 100 percent. you know i think when you talk about manipulating photoshop you kind of imagine this kind of cut and stick approach where you're getting a background and, you know you're using maybe like another photo of an animal in the most incredible kind of pose um, and you're sticking it in and then you're sticking another and something that's incredibly artificial and doesn't even exist but I think I like that kind of optimizing an image because you're making the best of what it is and it's already good but you just need to enhance a few images and um, you know particularly in the modern day of social media it's it's important to do that to stand out and you know you have I, I kind of have different edit strategies so if I'm putting something on Instagram for example there's very different edit criteria then will be entered into a competition or um will be used in prints or something like that it's i feel like you know on social media things are enhanced a lot more you see a lot of photographs where the saturation is boosted up probably way too far things are burnt out and it's um it's a very different kind of thing but that it's 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 interesting i mean i don't like doing that very much at all um, you know, it's like I make the minute details, but you know, you can see definitely on Instagram there is the tendency to really over enhance, I'd say. And those images are really popular, so you can see, you know, it it works in some ways. Um, but I don't, yeah, it depends. I think it's personal preference. I don't do that to my images, but it does work. So I wanted to talk a, a little bit about you as as the presenter, and you know, obviously you had this great kind of training with photography from a young age and your interest in in zoology and did you have kind of in mind or uh, a dream about becoming a presenter was that something that you knew you wanted to do before you studied zoology or did it come about you know, not later? specifically I never went into it thinking that I you know wanted to be a presenter very much I just wanted to be in the best position possible to reach the biggest audience in order to start conversations and make some significant change. Um, I think, you know, I always grew up in and around film crews. I was quite used to cameras and the kit and how film crews work and how edit process happens and how films come together. Um, so for me, that was always something that because I had that background knowledge, I was always kind of drawn to. Um, and I always really enjoy being part of that process. Um, I think for me, it kind of came about um, because I spent quite a long time, um, well, I spent five, six months living in China, um, working with bears there um, on, that had been rescued from the bear bile industry. And I was volunteering out there and I came back from that trip and I got a message from a friend of mine, one of my absolute heroes and mentors and um, yeah, just an incredible incredibly good friend and person Ruth Pesey who was uh, at the time working for the BBC on a project called Undercover Tourist and they needed uh, another kind of story and she asked if I had any ideas and I said well I've just come back from this bear place you know talking about kind of traditional medicine and um, the kind of the cruel the cruelty that these bears have to suffer to be kind of milked from their of their bile from their gallbladders so I kind of said well why don't we go and do a story on that 
Um, and then within two weeks, I think I was on a plane and out presenting that. So it kind of just evolved that way. That was back in 2017. Um, and uh, I've been behind the camera doing things. I've helped in different productions. I've also been in front of it. Um, and it's kind of just evolved, really. Yeah, and that um, I, I watched that film this week. It's well, it's pretty tough watching. It's um, it you know it, amazingly well put together. I mean, you said it, it, in the beginning that this was you know incredibly low budget in terms of you shooting a lot of stuff on smartphones and using GoPros. And um, but there's a real edginess to it. It's uh, I, I mean, we'll put a link up to it in on your page so people can watch it. It's really really good. And actually, on that, I had a, a question. You know people should just go and watch the film because it's brilliant but the 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 kind of the goal of that film was you know is an investigative investigative piece and to try and expose what was going on and you keep mentioning through it that actually that this is an illegal you know this is a this is illegal in vietnam where you were filming and i wondered if there was any did it did anything come from the work that that you were doing i mean i know you did some work with animals asia but but um yeah was anything didn't was there any result of the film any positive result um you know about the bear bar farming industry i think it really helped kind of boost people's awareness of the issue a lot of people had no idea that um bears are used in this way and just to kind of give everyone a bit of a background it's um asiatic black bears in particular also tibetan browns and sun bears as well but primarily asiatic black bears uh, or moon bears as they're known because they've got this beautiful crescent across their chest but they are um sometimes taken from the wild depending on the country there's different practices taken from the wild they're kept in cages their lifespan's up to 30 years they can spend 30 years in a cage um and they are well there's different methods but they basically remove the um bile from the gallbladder and the bile is a digestive fluid and it is used in traditional Chinese medicine. It's also used as an aphrodisiac. It's, it does have anti-inflammatory properties, which is the issue, but there are better plant synthetic alternatives um, available. So it's kind of changing that mindset. And I think, you know, going out there to expose it was really good because I wanted to build the awareness in the UK because uh, I, I really wanted to help support the charity Animals Asia, which you mentioned before. And they were the people that I was volunteering with when I was out in China. And I'd say kind of, it's their work that has done the most amazing thing you know I've they're one of my favorite charities they've done so so much work to end this awful trade and uh also they work on other things as well they do kind of work against circuses and against the uh, dog and um cat meat trade as well um and they have really turned the tide on this and it really varies from country to country so as you said in vietnam it is illegal to milk bears for their bile although it's legal to keep bears, which is entirely counterproductive because they're a big animal. It's, you know, it's a small cage for that animal, but it's, you know, relatively speaking, when you've got a bear in your kitchen, it does take up a fair bit of space and they are often in people's kitchens or garages or living rooms, actually, in some cases. And um, so, yeah, it's a big loophole there that you can keep them, but not milk them. And then in uh, China, it is legal. So, it's it really varies from country to country and I think a few months after we uh released the film um we got some really exciting news and it's all down to Animals Asia and their tireless campaigning but in Vietnam they were making it illegal to even house the bears which was really really good news um so that's a huge step forward in Vietnam um of course there are other issues there because 
now than the, be- the bears there were worth more dead than alive because you could sell bear paws and you could sell different body parts and the skins. So there was kind of an issue there and animals Asia worked really hard to kind of get more sanctuary space to rescue more so that, you know, they didn't end up in that fate, which was, um, which would be absolutely devastating after all that tires, tireless, but, but it's, um, yeah, it's a huge step in the right direction. And I think a lot of people, there, there was a suggestion that bear bile could help cure COVID-19, which was absolutely horrendous and, um, absolutely no scientific validity to that whatsoever. Um, but that seems to have kind of gone away. <laughs> so hopefully um, the, the industry is reducing and we are seeing it, you know, younger generations are much less accepting um, because, you know, animals are going to schools and they're teaching in the areas where uh, a lot of families do keep bears. So it's, um, it, it's getting there and, you know, they're doing some amazing, amazing work. They're a fantastic charity, all, all run by, uh, found, well, founded by Jill Robinson, who's a, one of the kindest most genuine people I've ever met. She's a fantastic conservationist. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, that's, you, you mentioned the, you know, the youth movement movement in, you know, countries such as Vietnam. So I, I spent some time there last year, early last year, um, with Fauna and Flora International. Uh, one of my good friends is the director of the Primate Programme there, and we made a film together. And um, that was one of the key messages were, you know, this wasn't about Western NGOs, which, of course, Fauna and Flora International is, but a lot of their partners are local NGOs. There's a there's a really good one called Green Viet, for example, um, that do a lot of work around primate conservation. So these are these are you know Vietnam founded organisations run by Vietnamese, doing lots and lots of education work. And there's a there's a place called um, Son Cha, a reserve that's um, actually it's still I think it's still an, an, an active military training ground, but it's right on this peninsula, um, close to the city of Da Nang, and they have um, um, oh my god, I've had a total mind blank. Um, well, red duke langers, yeah. So they have red, uh, lots of uh, a big population of red shank duke langers there, which are just such beautiful primates. Um, there's a sort of a thousand or so. So they're endangered, you know, not critically endangered. Most primates in Vietnam are critically endangered. It's pretty sad. But right on the edge of this reserve, they're this amazing um, education center, you know, run entirely by young. Vietnamese people and I think that with the movement and of course Vietnam's one of it's it's a booming economy it has been booming for the last 10 years and so you have this rise of middle class and that's also brings problems in terms of you know resorts and development and housing and cars and all this infrastructure that's that that's being built um but you also have people that are passionate about their own natural heritage and I think that's that's really important um, and particularly, you know, worldwide is getting local people interested in what they have and interested in wanting to protect what they have because they know it's special. Yeah, exactly. I think that's so, so important is kind of local communities taking ownership of their fantastic natural resources. And I think, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing. Um, and that needs to be kind of promoted more. You know, you do see quite a lot of the time, you know, we could, big western ngos come in or people come in and tell the stories but you know should it be them telling it should be you know celebrated in that culture and by you know those people so it's um yeah it's i think and i think things are changing in that respect as well which is actually really good to see you seeing it kind of more and more in mainstream media so hopefully things keep keep going like that i think it's really important 
Yeah, and I, you know, I think one of the things that's come up quite a bit in conversations now, particularly with the pandemic, is you know, do we really need to send film crews out to Brazil? What about local Brazilian film crews? Do we need to send them film crews out to Southeast Asia? You know, there are perfectly adequate, good, you know, young photographers and filmmakers who are living locally, and you're thinking about carbon footprints and you know, it, it, the, the local message is really gaining traction right now. And I think that's definitely for the better. I think it's brilliant. I think it's really exciting. I'm really, you know, I love those conversations. And I think they are, you know, fantastic. It's fantastic that things are moving in that way, because, you know, to to kind of use that and reduce carbon footprint, as you say, but also get different perspectives as well. Um, you know, and you can still get be amazing in that respect is the kind of add more diversity into um the output of media i think would be fantastic no absolutely one of the things i was thinking um just while you were talking there about presenting and you know looking at the kind of the results is you know i sometimes get really frustrated you know when you bombarded with lots of negative news and biodiversity on a downward spiral it is kind of hard to maintain a positive attitude but um you know, hearing that story about your work and then with Animals Asia is that like, okay, so what difference did it make? Well, you were there and you made a short film and it, it did some awareness raising. It's probably hard, hard to measure it, but actually what it is, is you're a small piece of the bigger puzzle and collectively with good science, with good NGOs, you know, with good filmmakers and presenters, it's together, it's all part of a kind of groundswell of trying to make change and even though it's hard to quantify you you have to just keep going forwards don't you you can't just bury your head under a pillow because that's not going to do any good either but do you fight do you struggle with it sometimes do you do you do you do you kind of wake up sometimes and you know whatever you pick your phone up hear some more terrible news about the state of nature you think god what am i doing you know it's getting worse and you know you're putting all this energy in and it's getting worse so how do you how do you motivate yourself it's a struggle, I'd say, every day in some way, shape or form. It's really hard, as you say, seeing those horrendous statistics or news stories. And it seems like constant bad news after more bad news and then even worse news. And it just kind of it's easy to kind of spiral um, and it it can become really challenging. And then you kind of get onto the mindset of, well, is it ever going to change? It doesn't seem to be changing. Is it worth investing all this much energy and input into it? Um, and then at that point, I kind of have to pinch myself and just say, come on, <laughs> like, you know, you, you've got, you can never, ever, ever give up on this kind of thing. You know, when you love something more than anything in the world, you're never going to give up on it. Um, and for me, I kind of use that negative energy. I think it's actually incredibly powerful. Um, I, I use it and I try and turn it into something productive, something meaningful, something, you know, that, okay, that happened today that's awful what can I do about it that's the question you know can you um you know whether it's simply clicking share on social media and sharing it with your friends and followers you know that could amplify the message 100 1000 8000 50000 times depending on your you know your social circle your followers whatever whether it's okay can I donate do I have the funds to donate and if I can't do that how can I shed the share the message so that people who you know might be able to donate can see it or can I be active in some sort of way um and you know I get asked this question a lot you know am I an activist and if you were to ask me that about five years ago I would have said well I don't know kind of activism kind of gets um I, don't know, I think 
there's a negative stigma to the word you know you think of activist and um you know as um boris johnson says uncooperative crusties um <laughs> you know that that kind of thing so but but my mindset on you know of course i'm an activist i've always been an activist and i'm incredibly proud to, to be one and i think anybody who has any kind of interest in nature or photography or film or anything like that is an activist everybody who is active in one way shape or form within their environment is an activist um whatever label you like to put on it it's the case so it might be that you want to go and join Extinction Rebellion and go to the extreme side of it and, you know, get arrested, which you don't have to do with Extinction Rebellion. There's only, you know, a few people that are willing to do that in comparison to the army behind them that is there to support and um, kind of teach and just join um, in the rebellions. Or um, you can, you know, put some native wildflowers in your garden and put a hedgehog hole in your fence. That is still activism. You're still being active and all those steps should be celebrated. And I think it's kind of changing the mindset of, well, I'm only one person. What I do isn't going to make a difference. And that is the most dangerous mindset in conservation. It's the most dangerous thing that we all think is, you know, well, you know, they're too big, I'm too small. And that can't be the case. It can't be allowed to continue like that because collectively our voices are so incredibly powerful if we want to steer in a direction as consumers then the people making the products or driving the industrial side of things will eventually follow but it's our voices that matter it's clicking on that share button that matters it's donating that matters it's starting conversations and um and just realizing that you as an individual absolutely can make the world of difference um and yeah, we need to start talking more about that and um, encouraging and empowering one another in that situation to become more active, to stand up and say, yeah, I'm an activist. Uh, today I put a bee hotel or, yeah, I'm an activist. I went and joined this protest movement. Whatever it is, whatever you're comfortable with, it's brilliant. But just wake up tomorrow morning. If you see something bad on the news, do something differently to counteract it. Well, Megan, you put that brilliantly and so succinctly. It's fa fabulous um in information and and yeah i think it's it, it is so important because i think we can tend to because we care about it and we love the natural world and we want to do everything that we can to protect it it can also become a burden but you're right it, it ought not to be and you don't have to go and you know glue yourself to the home office like you say you can really do you can you can really do yeah you can do and yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um you know and that phrase doing your bit it, it is important and you don't you know you only have to go back a few years and you know the you know the banning or, or okay well now charging of plastic bags you know that has had a huge effect you know people are no no longer just getting plastic bags willy-nilly and they're just throwing them away and there are so many things like that you know i think the the, the rise of extinction of rebellion is a is a really positive one with you know especially with all the satellite groups just here in our local park you know there are meetings and that kind of organization is 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 really really powerful um and actually a question i wanted to ask you because you know I, obviously I interviewed chris packham back in february and this was right at the crunch time of you guys launching wildlife rebellion so uh, of course then the pandemic came and and it seemed to put a bit of a stop to everything so where are you at um, with that now actually and first of all I shouldn't assume that everybody's heard of wildlife rebellion so if it's still happening maybe talk <laughs> talk a bit about it and let me know where you are with it now 
yeah it's very much still happening so um, wildlife rebellion is essentially it is a movement um but it's focused on biodiversity loss when you look at news and you look in different media outlets you know it's all news about climate which is incredibly important of course um but it also goes hand in hand with biodiversity loss so we wanted to bring in um, that aspect of it too into the conversation so we are primarily looking at that but we kind of have a slightly different method in terms of a rebellion we're still very much a rebellion we're still definitely going to be a little bit cheeky but everything that we do is going to be within the law um, and it's going to be kind of like a family friendly activism I suppose um, and we you know our aim is to kind of encourage people to be active within their environment so if you're not comfortable yet joining extinction rebellion that's okay you don't have to be but come and join us we'll you know make sure that everything all the activities all the actions are going to be legal and authorized and we'll get you know wherever whichever location our actions are in we'll have you know agreements that we're allowed to be there and allowed to do it so you know you can be safe in that knowledge um but what we'll be doing will be we'll have a kind of a, a cheeky element to it and hopefully drive for more political systematic change which is what we all really need so it's highlighting biodiversity loss and and encouraging people to be more active and if they kind of build their confidence in activism with us and they feel like going on to extinction rebellion fantastic if they want to kind of hang around with us and do, or take it off and do their own you know wildlife rebellion groups locally that's even better um so that's kind of the premise behind it but we were planning to launch on the day that lockdown was announced. <laughs> Couldn't have been worse timing. Not the best timing. We had, I think, three campaigns that were ready to go. We just needed to press the green button and uh, we had to put them on hold because some of them were, as I said, it is, we are being a bit cheeky here uh, with some of our ideas. And um, in, in that, at that point when, you know, our government was incredibly, well, they still are, um, you know concerned with covid and the stress on the nhs everything else we didn't feel like it was politically correct to be adding to that stress or you know it wasn't it wasn't the right time for us to be doing that so we uh put the brakes on it for a little bit and we were kind of constantly talking still uh judging what the climate's like and seeing you know when we can start things back up and we can reshuffle campaigns so that we can ease back into it and not go in you know, necessarily, we weren't going to go in too hard, obviously, with family friendly activism, but we were going to go in, you know, and be a little bit naughty because it's, it is a rebellion after all. And also, it's fun, isn't it? Being, you know, kids love that kind of stuff going in and being a bit cheeky. Yeah, of so course it is. And how did, how did any of the civil rights movements progress without being, I mean, more than a little bit cheeky? But yeah, that's the whole point of activism, isn't it? It's like you're standing up for something that, um, you know, you feel is inherently wrong and that you want to make change. So, yeah, yeah, being cheeky sounds like, you know, being quite polite. Yeah, exactly. We, we wanted to kind of build people's confidence. I think, for, you know, the question is, and this is what, you know, when I talk about extinction rebellion or any kind of rebellion, it always comes down to this. And when you're breaking rules or breaking the law, depending on which um, factor you're going for, it, it, what it comes down to is at what point does it become morally just to break the law or break the rule if that rule or law is entirely wrong you know at what point do you have a moral responsibility you know we're learning all the time we are evolving all the time um and you know sometimes the legislation doesn't keep up with that so at what point 
you know, to, to get that change, to kind of get the attention onto those issues, at what point do you need to break that rule, break that law in order to do that? And I think, you know, Extinction Rebellion have, you know, in the most part done it very well they've brought back they've done it incredibly well in terms of bringing up the conversation you know I've had conversations with my granddad about it who would never be talking about climate change I've had conversations with you know I've overheard things on the train about people you know and and these conversations wouldn't have started without them so um and we wildlife rebellion certainly wouldn't have done and all the branches ocean rebellion now there's animal rebellion which focuses on animal agriculture there's all these kind of branches of rebellions which are really exciting so you can kind of join in and out of well as many as you like but um it, they kind of all interweave you've got indigenous rebellions you've got muslim rebellion you've got all these amazing kind of groups that you can go and join it's very inclusive and a very actually quite, quite an interesting place to be involved in yeah i think people are fast realizing that business as usual is just not sustainable yeah it's uh, well, something that chris says is um it's um business as usual is bad business <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a that's a great yeah, phrase i think it works quite well so we need to uh, adjust our way of thinking and adjust our actions and we've proven that we can do it look how quickly we have adapted to covid you know jobs which you couldn't possibly work from home at now everyone is working from home we've been able to change and use um the resources effectively change our mindsets to deal with that so it shows how resilient we are when we need to be but we don't want to get to a point where we need to be resilient to protect ourselves against climate change because we won't win. Um, so we need to be a bit more forward thinking and put those precautions in place now so that we have a fighting chance. Megan, time is flying. I mean, we could talk for hours and hours, um, but I did want to cover quickly because, OK, Wildlife Rebellion was was put on hold, but that didn't stop you guys getting creative and, and putting content out there and you started the self-isolating bird club um back in was it march you you, you first started that yeah i think so it feels like a lifetime ago but yeah <laughs> can you can you talk a, a a little bit to the listeners about that and how it started and 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 where it is currently yeah so self-isolating bird club was kind of it started off quite small just as a facebook live that we did from the garden because um Chris and I, when I moved in with Chris to work together in lockdown, so that worked out quite well. And he started, you know, noticing spring arriving around the garden and taking a lot of joy and comfort from that. So we, he thought it'd be a great idea to do a Facebook Live and share that joy and just talk about, I think it was um, Celadines, actually, was the first one that he did. Um, and so he started doing them twice a day, just kind of lives and sharing, you know, what plants were coming up, what birds were singing. Uh, and then he went to work. So I took over for a little bit. And then um, we came back together and we started doing them as a duo. And um, it was just uh, a case of sharing the spring around the country, basically, because we were, you know, in a place which was really hard to kind of connect with people. So we thought it'd be really nice to kind of have a community of nature lovers where all the content is entirely positive. There was no bad news. There was all, it was all really nice conservation stories. We followed CJ7 and Osprey, who was waiting for a mate in Pool Harbour, um, hoping it was going to be the, the first time that they'd been breeding down south in the, of England in like over 200 years. Unfortunately, it wasn't the year, but the nation got gripped by CJ7 and her story. 
Um, so we, you know, used live cameras and we got contributors from all around England and, and in fact the world. We had India, we had South Africa, we had live guests, you know, Michaela Strachan, we've had YOLO, Hannah Stitfel, everyone came on, yourself even, we had, you know, videos from you and your foxes, Matt, which was fantastic. Um, and it was just to kind of give people a bit of comfort and a bit of hope and, and it's built in this most amazing community of nature lovers on, on Facebook. We've got, you know, a, a fantastic people having those important conversations and we're doing them now uh, it was every day and we now doing them every Friday. Um, but yeah, we're going to see, we've got, got a bit of thinking to do in terms of what the future of. South yeah. Africa I mean, that's the, you've, you've maybe you've created yourself a bit of a problem now. You've got a big following. People are expecting mm-hmm. to get all of this great content. Um, you know, you can't stop now, can you? Well, no, we might, we may have to uh, consider putting things on pause a little bit because we're going into autumn watch season. Um, so we will see we're going to have conversations about that and see what happens but whatever happens it's definitely not the end of self-isolating bird club it's been the most amazing thing that's come out of lockdown and um, yeah the most amazing community and it's been amazing to see everyone support one another yeah and it also seemed nice that you weren't you know this is one of the the wonders of you know one of the positive aspects of social media that you're you know not really restrained by you know any kind of governing body this is just like you guys putting this stuff out there and you know, I really paid attention to you know you had lots of topics around mental health issues um the black lives matter uh, movement and also a lot of young people which I thought was brilliant and it was really great to see those stories across you know big swathes of society and was that something that you talked about or did it just kind of evolve naturally that you wanted that varied content I think it's really it was just really important to talk about I think we all 100% agreed on it so it's a team of four it's myself and Chris and of course the absolutely amazing tech wizard Fabian Harrison who produces it all from his uh, house in Norwich and Kate Crocker as well who is um you know fantastic sorting out all the social media for us and um yeah, so all four of us just it was just a given. There was no kind of question of it. You know, young people need to have that platform. Their voices are so, so powerful and important. And there's some incredibly, you know, knowledgeable young naturalists out there. You know, Indy Green does a lot of videos for us and he's fantastic. You've got Dara McNulty, you've got uh, just like this whole host. You've it's just you know, Kabir Cool, you've got the most amazing people, Holly Gilliband up in Scotland. Um, and they are so empowering to listen to. We just you know we're captivated by them so we wanted to kind of give them a platform so that they could captivate the nation which they have done um and you know black lives matter was a a really important moment i think um this year and we wanted to talk about black birders week uh which was you know it kind of all stemmed from the incident that happened in um in uh, New York, uh, which was a horrible, horrible incident of, you know, horrendous racism. Um, so, uh, you know, against a black birder who was just out birding and because um, the Black Birders Week came and it was it was phenomenal. It was amazing talking about diversity in the nature sector, which is a conversation, again, that we need to be having more of. There, you know, there's not enough access and inclusion and there needs to be that. So for us, we wanted to cover those stories and we wanted to you know, give a platform to those voices because they're much more powerful and important than our own. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And, um, you know, it's great. And, you know, that's that's the thing about having those conversations about diversity, but then putting them into action. Um, I actually, oh yeah, I listen to a few podcasts myself and one, one of them is the the Football Weekly um, podcast on The Guardian. And the the host they had you know, they they regularly have women on there talking about football um but the majority are white male journalists and you know around the black lives matter movement it sparked conversations on their podcast about it 
uh, and they had a black journalist on there and he thought well these things just have to be put in so you have to when you make your program you have to say okay one out of every four of your shows you have to have a black journalist on you know and that's basically how these things have to work it's, it's great talking about it it's great having the conversation but you know we need action if we're going to back up the diversity conversation we have to open those floors you know it's it's we have to open those conversations and open those arenas for everyone no matter where you're from no matter what your background is you know everyone needs that to have their voice heard everyone you know should have that that should just be a given so you know those are important conversations and we need to have a lot more you know I think it in in some ways it's got better and in other ways it absolutely hasn't and we need to be having more of those conversations and be more inclusive because you know it's our diversity that makes us strong it's our diversity of ideas it's the diversity of different people with different kind of backgrounds coming at things from different angles that is the most important thing you know so whether you're talking about sport you know I was I've been listening to um George the poet who's absolutely incredible amazing if you haven't listened to George the poet go listen to him but listen to a bit of him when I was traveling around Scotland um and you know he says it so so well um and i think you know we need to be more open and more inviting so you've got autumn watch coming up yeah potentially yeah <laughs> so yeah you made your uh, a big debut on spring watch this year that must have been pretty exciting for you it was great yeah it was um yeah i never expected to if you, you know if you said a year ago that i would have been on spring watch i would have kind of laughed and said oh no way (laughs) but it happened it did happen and it was yeah it was the most amazing experience it was you know surreal doing it from home um I'd never done live tv all the tv that I'd done prior to that was all kind of pre-recorded stuff yeah the pressure was on right (laughs) yeah this was different you have to get used to people talking in your ear you have to get used to like a quite different way of working but obviously minimal crew because of covid as well so we only had four people on site with us um, which was, you know, tiny in comparison to the kind of plus a hundred easily. Amazing, yeah. And what a technical feat it was pulling it off in the way that you did. Massively, Massively. to all, all those live elements, you know, presenters around the country dealing with all of that. I mean, I've, I'm not very, you know, well versed in the technical side of it, but however they did that was incredible. It was a huge, huge triumph, I think. Um, and it was just amazing to see people's reactions to it because. Uh, yeah I, I I think people really enjoyed it which was great great to see it's such a popular program isn't it I think people are devastated you know that oh god we're all locked at home here if spring watch doesn't happen then we may as well just give up so yeah BBC had to pull pull it out of the bag and 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 they did and it's it's really funny you know just googling your name now and it's all the kind of broadsheets you know who is this Megan McCubbin and you know and then of course you go on a program like spring watch and millions of people are watching it so it's, you know your the spotlight is shining right on you and then you're kind of oh no god you're at the mercy of the tabloid press and but you know it seems like they're on your side <laughs> i hope so <laughs> you never know which way it's going to go i think with such a beloved show like Springwatch, it's um you know it, people hold it really close to their hearts so any change is something that is really kind of um difficult so you know the change in format I mean there's lots of changes this year like lots of guest presenters which was great you know Ellie Harrison um you know Gordon Buchanan Steve Backshaw um myself um and you know doing it all from home as well so it was lots of changes but so it could have been 
yeah, it could have gone one way or the other, I suppose, but it, it went really far in the right direction, which was amazing. That's great. So you don't know where you don't know yet whether you've been asked back for Autumn Watch, or can you talk about? It? You have to wait and see. Okay, I can see Megan. Everyone, she's got a sparkle in her eye. <laughs> I'm guessing it's a yes. But anyway, look, I won't grill you on that anymore. Um, we've been going for over an hour now, and um, I wanted to to ask you a couple more questions um, before I let you go. Um, and you know, just going back. You know, I think your your career path is seems to be quite, um, uh, I suppose, common now in terms of people wanting to get into this kind of field of whether it's photography or conservation or, you know, presenting filmmaking. You know, I, I interviewed Roxy Furman um, last year and, you know, she's now studying at Bristol and taking a similar path. And this kind of I would say jack of all trades, but just you know mixing every mixing everything up. Is this the way that you? I get a lot of messages, you know, after these podcasts or um, graduates, you know, messaging me either asking to be an assistant or just giving giving advice. And you know, one of the things, I mean, I'm okay. I, I guess I'm more of a pure photographer. Yeah, I, my income is very broad, but um, you know, with publishing and you know, have an agency and and there's no one thing I live off of. But I would just say my if someone asks me what I do, it's kind of easy. I'm a photographer, but it's not easy making a living. So how do you kind of encourage someone, you know, to, to do what you do and, and, and to get in it? What, what would, what would be your advice? Well, I think, you know, having that diversity of jobs and, you know, kind of doing a bit of presenting or photography or podcast recording or, you know, anything like that is really exciting because every day is so different. Um, And, you know, that's what I love about it is, I wake up and there's no two days are ever the same um and it's just like the way it is with wildlife you know you go out you might go into the same wood every day but it will be entirely different because the things you'll see the smells the weather whatever will make it different so it's a it is you know quite an unusual job in that it is whenever anyone asks me what I do I kind of always scratch my head because it's kind of well a bit of this bit of that bit of bit of over there bit of over here and it's um yeah it's always quite quite funny to describe but I think it's such a great great thing to be able to go and do because if you've got that fundamental love of biology that fundamental love of animals you get to spend your whole day pretty much chatting about it and that's all I want. so instead of boring my family and friends by I don't know the you know wild cats or beaver reintroductions or I don't know um how bees cut half crescent moon shapes in in leaves to make them the plant flower earlier rather than going into the detail and boring my you know my family about all that stuff or barring Chris obviously because we'd be riding out together but other family members who are interested but not quite so interested um you know I can go and talk about it you know on a podcast or on the telly and I have great fun doing it so it's um you know my advice would be just kind of get stuck in if you can you know get get a camera you don't need necessarily you know start on your phone that's fine um and you know because the cameras and the recording systems on that are pretty good just give it a go try um and and just start somewhere you know go out and just try and do like a mindfulness moment perhaps you know like they did on spring watch go out and just film things that are beautiful and try and edit them together in a way that's a bit creative and different and just play around be experimental but just don't be afraid to like you, like your advice on the writing, just get stuck in and give it a go and keep going, because then you'll you will potentially, but most probably, end up with something quite amazing and you'll build your skills over time. But just yeah, don't be intimidated by the the different facets of it. Just go for it. 
brilliant great advice megan and so what about you you're how are you 24 now 25 um what what are your hopes and and wishes and dreams for the future do you think about what you might want to be doing when you're 35 45 I don't know. I've, I'm still very much open to it. I'd love to do a PhD at some point. I'd really love to go and do a PhD. I'm, I'm really into kind of big predatory animals. So anything with claws, teeth and um, anything like that is fascinating. I've, you know, I've done a lot of work, big cats and sharks and things. So maybe, you know, a research project looking at that. And also illegal wildlife trade is a, is a huge, huge passion of mine. So maybe a PhD on something like that. Um, but also kind of science communication. I love, loved the presenting side of it. I love kind of the research that goes into it so um yeah I'd like to be in, in a position where I can kind of communicate better to a wider audience about these kind of issues and um potentially kind of you know help bring about more activism more change so that might overarch as long as I'm kind of making progress in that you know in in changing mindsets and challenging people's environmental perceptions then I, I'm happy with whatever avenue it happens to be Megan, thank you so much for speaking to us. It's been great finally getting you on, and um, yeah, we'll put uh, uh, we'll put we'll certainly put the links up to the Self Isolating Bird Club. Um, all your social media links. I encourage everyone to follow Megan. She does you know very really active with great stories, and we'll find your we'll we'll dig deep and find your winning image from. 2007 and we'll put a link up to that and um yeah we'll keep the conversation going and and we'll, we'll have you on again yeah that'd be great well thank you so much for having me it's been great to finally chat <laughs> brilliant thanks megan take care see you later bye thank you megan what a fabulous insight into her journey so far and what an inspiration campaigning on so many fronts and using all available platforms to get everyone engaged. First of all, I need to mention that I completely forgot to bring up her book again, which is hot off the press and a must purchase for anyone with a love for nature. It's entitled Back to Nature and looks at how we feel about the wildlife outside our windows and how we can connect with it. She's co-written the book with Chris Packham and it's coming in November. There's a link to it in Megan's podcast page on my website. So please check that out and spread the word. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next month with more great stories from the world's best photographers, conservationists, filmmakers, and much, much more. Bye.